If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today our guest is Jakob Juskoreit. He is a researcher at Google Brain, and uh, that's kind of all you have to say at this point. Welcome to the show, Jakob. Let's start with uh, my standard my standard question, which is what what is artificial intelligence, and or what is intelligence if you want to start there, and why is it artificial? Um, yeah. Hi. Thanks for thanks for having me. Um, I think uh, let's let's start with with artificial intelligence specifically. Um, I don't think I'm necessarily the best person to answer uh, the question what intelligence is in, in general. But I think for artificial intelligence, there's possibly two different uh, kind of ideas um, that that we might be referring to with that phrase these days. One is kind of the the scientific or or kind of a group of um, uh, directions of scientific research. Um, including things like machine learning, uh, but also other related disciplines that people commonly uh, refer to uh, um, with the term artificial intelligence. But I think there's this other, maybe more important uh, use of the phrase uh, that has become much more much more common um, kind of in this day uh, or, or age of the rise of AI, if you want to call it that. Um, and that is kind of what society uh, interprets that term to mean, and I think largely what uh, what society might think um, when or might refer to when they hear the term artificial intelligence is actually automation um, in a very general uh, general way, and maybe more specifically uh, automation um, where the process of automating it requires uh, the machine or the machines uh, doing so to make decisions that are highly dynamic in response to their environment and kind of in our ideas or in our conceptualization of those processes require something like human intelligence. So, so I really think it's actually uh, something that doesn't necessarily in the eyes of the public have that much to do with, um, with intelligence per se. It's more the idea of automating things that at least so far only humans could do um, and the kind of hypothesized reason for that is that only humans possess this ephemeral thing of, uh, of intelligence. Do you think it's a problem? I mean, I ran into this a lot. Do you think it's a problem that, you know, a cat food dish that refills itself when it's empty, you could say it has a rudimentary AI and you can say, you know, Westworld is populated with AIs. And those, those things are so vastly different. And they're not even really on a continuum, are they? Like they're not, they're not, a general intelligence isn't just a better narrow intelligence, or is it? So I think that's a, that's a very interesting question. Whether basically improving uh, and slowly generalizing or expanding the capabilities of narrow intelligences uh, will eventually get us there. And if I had to venture a guess, I would say that's quite likely, actually. Um, that said, I'm, I'm definitely not the right person to, uh, to answer that. I do think that kind of guesses at, at 
uh, that aspect of things are still today in the realms of philosophy and uh, extremely hypothetical. But, you know, the, the one trick that we have gotten good at recently that's given us things like, you know, Alpha Zero uh, is machine learning, right? And it's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's a particularly, it's a, it's, it is itself a very narrow thing. It, it, it basically has one core assumption, which is the future is like the past. And for many things, it is what a dog looks like in the future is what a dog looked like yesterday. But one, one has to ask the question is, how much of life is actually like that? Um, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, so I think that's a, that, that is, in, in fact, uh, how should I say? I think machine learning is actually um, evolving rapidly from the kind of initial classic idea of uh, basically trying to predict the future just given the past, and not just the past, but kind of an encapsulated version of the past. Right? So it's, it's basically a snapshot captured in this fixed static data set uh, you expose the machine to that, you allow it to learn from that, train on it, whatever you want to call it, and then you evaluate how the resulting uh, model or, or machine or network uh, does in the wild or on some evaluation tasks, some tests that you prepared for it. And it's evolving from that classic uh, definition towards something uh, that is quite a bit more dynamic, um, that uh, is starting to incorporate um, learning in situ, um, learning kind of in quotes on the job, um, learning from very different kinds of supervision where some of it might be encapsulated in static data sets, but some might be given to the machine um, through somewhat more high level interactions, uh, maybe even through language. There's at least a bunch of lines of research attempting that. And and also uh, quite importantly, we're starting slowly but surely to employ machine learning in ways where the machines, the machines' actions actually have an impact on the world from which the machine then keeps learning. And I think that that's actually something that is all of these parts are necessary ingredients uh, if we ever want to have narrow intelligences that maybe have a chance of getting more general, um, and maybe then in the in the more distant future. Uh, might even be bolted together into into a somewhat more general uh, artificial intelligence. Two years ago, when AlphaGo played Lisa Dole, um, where where were you? What were you doing when that was going on? Do you remember? Um, I was traveling actually, which was interesting because I uh, uh, I only got the the results with quite a bit of delay, um, but. To be quite frank, I actually uh, uh, I wasn't very surprised to to see the result of the game. It was it was interesting to to then see it actually happen, and uh, really to also follow up on um, the media's reaction, the Go community's reaction uh, to this event. Um, but I think uh, yeah, it wasn't like uh, I was uh, on the edge of my seat, um, very uncertain about the outcome. And in game two, there was, you know, the legendary move 37, which was the first time people started talking about AlphaGo and AI for that matter, being creative, that this was a creative mm-hmm. move. This was, mm-hmm. do you believe that AlphaGo, just as an example, is creative or 
can only mimic but the, creativity, or there's no difference no. between those two statements? I think that really depends on on the actual definition of, of creativity uh, that you want to use. If by creativity you mean um, basically break out of patterns uh, that have been observed or that have even ever occurred before, um, by virtue of uh, having, in quotes, understood the dynamics of, in this case, a game, uh, then I would say yes. That that was that was something uh, that was kind of an act of creativity. That said, uh, the way humans oftentimes uh, I think conceptualize creativity is something much more closely related uh, to uh, the human condition and um, to expressing things about the human creati- uh, condition. So creativity, as you find it in say. Um, uh, music or, or the arts overall, I think, is something that is quite different and, and requires uh, a much deeper, maybe even real understanding of the human condition uh, to be performed. And that it certainly was not. Um, so I do think that, uh, you know, for, for, some, for some definition, it definitely broke out of the established pattern so much that the human experts observing it kind of were taken aback and, and thought they had seen something that was novel, truly novel. Uh, and and if, you, if you define that as creative, then, then yes, it certainly was. So I'm going to misquote Moby Dick here because I'm doing this from memory. But there's a, there's a passage in there and it, it goes like this. <clears throat> and he piled forth on the whale's white hump the sum of all his rage and fury. If his chest had been a cannon, he would have fired his heart upon it. Now, when you think of a passage like that, you know, it's, it's got metaphor and it's, it's visual and it's vivid and it, it's emotional. Does your analytical mind think, yeah, a computer could do that? A computer could write that. Uh, if, 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 if we trained, if we gave it the corpus of the internet, it could find out the kinds of metaphors that work well and apply them in the right situations and all of that. Do you, do you think, in theory, a computer could write that? And, and is that going to be a general intelligence or is that like a pretty simple thing? Mm. So, so this actually gets us to a very interesting uh, question that I've, I've debated a lot throughout my, throughout my career because I have worked a lot on, on natural language understanding and natural language generation systems. Um, so, you know, just like a million monkeys uh, let loose on typewriters will eventually produce Shakespeare, um, surely, especially given very powerful statistical langu- uh, models of language as we have them today, um, it is conceivable that a machine could generate, you know, sentences or phrases that, that have, that sound similar, um, that, you know, maybe hint at a similar command of, of English. Um, but the act of doing so, I think, is still fundamentally different, um, and and uh, from 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 uh, a human author um, writing the sentence. And the reason is that at least today's models of language um, uh, have absolutely no connection to the kind of extremely rich other aspects of the human experience. Uh, they are extremely smart, in quotes, uh, extremely advanced, I should maybe say, pattern matchers and pattern recognizers. 
Um, and they use these patterns and recompose them in ways that seem somewhat likely according to these uh, to, to previous observations in order to, to generate stuff. Um, but they cannot possibly relate to um, the depth of human emotions and the human experience and why that might be triggered by this specific situation as, as, as depicted in that book. So on one hand, I think it is conceivable that we can build machines in the short term that can fake certain things like this. Uh, and, and one approach there could be that they find existing outputs of human creativity and then they modify it slightly, maybe even under guidance of a human, uh, and then generate kind of variants. Uh, but for them to have an experience or to be able to imagine an experience and then describe that in such a way uh, I think uh, that is that is quite far off. And why do you think it is? Like anytime I see a, a chat bot that mm -hmm. you know purports uh, to try to pass the Turing test. I mean, not even. I mean, right. you know, those are all con constrained and all of that. I, anytime I, I I come across any of these, I type the same question: What's bigger, mm -hmm. a nickel or the sun? What's bigger, right. a nickel or the sun? And I never found. A system that would answer that question. Why is that so hard? It's it's difficult because um, these machines. First first of all, uh, we're, we're nowhere near the uh, still nowhere near the computational power to uh, even simulate, uh, let alone in real time, um, kind of the the computational processes that are happening in human brains these days. But even if we were to have that computational power. Today's machine learning paradigms used to train existing models for chatbots or, or similar applications are just not exposed to sufficiently rich stimuli. All they typically, at least, ever see uh, is, is text, canned, uh, and, 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 and static data sets. Um, they uh, cannot possibly, for example, um, experiment with actions uh, they might take in an environment and then see how the environment reacts in order to understand causality as opposed to uh, correlation. Um, nor can they uh, hope to experience uh, kind of the, 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 the rich uh, um, whatever, perception uh, of, of uh, the world that humans have. And when I say that, a funny uh, kind of aspect of this is that humans also, um, in their perception of the environment, are extremely specific. But if you think about it, the, uh, the senses we use in order to understand and or to even just take in the world are, are really quite specific and in a certain sense quite arbitrarily chosen. Uh, the, the fact that we have uh, vision as our primary sense and then we can also feel uh, uh, slight vibrations in, uh, in, in the fluid medium around us uh, that shapes our experience massively but is actually somewhat arbitrary. And I believe that until we have machines that we expose to a similarly broad range and similar also uh, range of uh, stimuli, uh, they will not be able to, in quotes, or to, not, not in quotes, to really understand um, what humans talk about when they write such a sentence. Even, then, even if we did, yeah, even, if, even, even once we do, there still is a question of, you know, Will we have the compute? Will we have the methodology uh, to build models that, that get there? But uh, certainly without exposing them to it, uh, we, we will not get there, in, in my opinion. 
Let's talk a little bit about, if we can, about transfer learning. Do you believe, you know, a human, you can train with a sample size of one, right? You can show somebody a photograph of a mythical creature and say, find all these mythical creatures, uh, find all occurrences of that in all these photos. And if, the, if it's upside down, mm-hmm. inverted, different color, covered in peanut butter, whatever, people are, ah, mm-hmm. there it is, there it is, there it is, there it is. Do you think that's the secret to a general intelligence like that's kind of 80% of the problem is whatever mechanism we use to do that is how we take data from why we don't have to be trained on everything. Uh, or do you think that's mm-hmm. just one, one component of many that we're going to have to crack? And do you have any insights on, on how we do that trick? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't have particularly deep insights uh, on, on how humans do that trick. Um, I do think that uh, being able to do it is, uh, in a certain sense, a necessary condition. Um, is it sufficient? I'm I'm not so sure. Uh, but but you can, in some of these, in quotes, transfer learning problems, you can actually wrap up or, uh, yeah, kind of require a, a large um, number of different um, aspects of intelligence in order to solve it. And I think... Um, it's actually less about the transfer or maybe, well, maybe the transfer plays, it plays an important role. Uh, but one of the interesting things that is often underemphasized, I believe, is the fact that even though you uh, called it zero shot or, or single shot learning, um, when you actually describe this task, there was no kind of, uh, uh, maybe have, 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 there was there was maybe absolutely no training. There was no uh, preparation. But instead, you actually said a bunch of sentences to me in order to describe that task, right? So uh, technically, what really happened is you um, said a bunch of sentences to me that I understood to the extent that I created a simulation in my head uh, where I could imagine these pictures, even though I've never actually seen a picture of a mythical creature covered in peanut butter. I imagined that, and I imagined the idea of having to count them. And then I can effectively understand, um, or can try to effectively understand what this task is that you expect of me, and I can start performing it without ever having had any kind of training. So this isn't even uh, a case where I can see a few examples of a task uh, and and then generalize from from a much smaller number of examples than machines can generalize from today. But there's actually a fundamentally different way of communicating what a task is. So today, uh, at least in almost all machine learning research, tasks are not uh, you know, the, the meaning of what a task is is not communicated communicated to the machine via any means other than uh, examples. Right. So you you literally just expose. Um, uh, examples of the application of a mapping to the machine, and then you expect the machine to recreate that mapping. Whereas the way humans learn, at least to a large extent, not always, but to a large extent often, and in the specific case that you brought up, um, is is uh, spanning different levels of abstraction, where you, co- you use language to communicate a bunch of different concepts to me, including uh, a, a specific instance of a task, and then I can try to perform that. Um, and I think that that kind of illustrates um, how far away today's standard machine learning is from from what humans can do. That said, there are people, like I said earlier, there are people who are starting to work uh, on uh, using machine learning 
in settings like this where you have agents that uh, exist in and interact with um, simulated or real environments and they try to um, either uh, communicating with other agents or communicating with humans they try to learn uh, or to train the agents to use language uh, generating and understanding uh, in order to uh, communicate the definition of tasks, goals, um, uh, aspects of the environment, etc. And I think that that's actually a, a fascinating research direction. Um, so coming back to, to your example, I think your example um, kind of subsumes uh, a whole bunch of interesting aspects of human intelligence that um, we would require machines to be able to at least emulate in order for them to become much more general. I don't think transfer learning in particular is is the only one or maybe even the most crucial one i think using language uh, or, or similar facilities to communicate much more abstract notions to basically communicate simulations if you wish is is something extremely powerful as well so you are a researcher at google brain and and i mean every, every everybody listening knows you know that that's one of the, the epicenters of of advances in artificial intelligence. And I'm curious, because when you read about the Manhattan Project, the -hmm. people at the Manhattan Project, they had a sense of the moment that they were in, and they had a sense of what they were doing and how it would change the world. And it was a gravitas Mm -hmm. that was over it. And you think of the moon landing, and you think of the the Constitutional Convention and the United States. And there are just these moments where people are so aware that their moment and the, that they are doing the thing that is going to change the world the most, the next. Is it, is it, is it like that on a day-to-day around where you work? Or is it like, hey, what are they bringing in for lunch today? Uh, <laughs> you know, like, is it, is it just, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's I don't want to say it's just a job, but or it's like, no, we show up and, and do whatever, solve whatever problem. Or is it like, we are, we are, we are doing something they'll talk about in a thousand years. Mm. So I think um, I think it's a continuum. Uh, I definitely do sometimes wonder what I should be getting for lunch. Um, but no, I think there is overall uh, there is something in the air. There definitely is the perception that um, you know this is uh, this is the beginning of something of something quite quite big, potentially quite big, or maybe likely quite big. Um, there definitely are moments uh, where, you know, just seeing what uh, different parts of the team produce, um, at seeing, you know, what, what kind of advances are made and how rapidly that happens. Uh, there definitely are these moments where um, you're looking at something and you think, wow, this must appear like magic to... Uh, 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 maybe you know outside, and and maybe even sometimes to to people in the group who don't exactly know what's going on um, uh, in that specific uh, case, and and it's it's quite a yeah it's it, it's quite an exciting atmosphere actually to to be in I have to say um, I will say that I don't think that at least uh, at least I can speak for for a large part of the group I think uh, in in saying that. I don't think we necessarily think that artificial general intelligence is that, uh, or is even absolutely crucial to that uh, to that change that uh, we might be affecting here or, or helping along. I, I think that much before that, we will actually see 
um, this field of AI slash machine learning um, have tremendous impact on the world uh, just using what I guess we would now maybe call somewhat more advanced narrow uh, forms of, of artificial intelligence. And I think a lot of people are already extremely excited about that prospect. So talking briefly about a general intelligence, well, uh, let, me, let me follow up with, with that. So there was also, when you think of the Manhattan Project, there was also a lot of angst about, you know, this is a technology that can be used for good and for evil, and they would think through the implications of it, and it would be, you know, late-night discussions about what was going to happen. It, do you have that kind of, um, kind of lurking, hanging in the air all the time about, uh, you know, this is a technology that can be put to good or evil use, and in the wrong hands, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, do you spend a lot of mental energy on kind of the, how it's going to be used and any culpability, responsibility, or, or credit you, you get from that? Absolutely. I actually think people might be surprised by how um, conscious people are of, of, uh, of these aspects of their work. Um, and I think it's, you know, like any technology, uh, its use uh, ultimately dictates, uh, uh, you know, whether uh, whether it's uh, for good or, 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 or for evil. But um, and, and like any or most influential technologies, um, there definitely is potential on both sides. Uh, I do think that uh, people are overall um, very aware of that and are thinking through um uh, a whole bunch of scenarios, not the least because there is actually extremely interesting research and science to be done um, considering uh, the abuse of such technology. Right? If, you, if you try to anticipate uh, what could ill-intentioned actors try to do with some of this intellectual property that we would like to share with the world, that we would like to be public, right, and that, that we publish, um, uh, you know, if if people if if uh, ill-intentioned actors were to use this, what could they do with it, and how could we um, mitigate those effects? How could we maybe not prevent them from doing it? Uh, in some cases, maybe even prevent them, um, but uh, but certainly install safeguards. Not necessarily in the technology, but uh, developing tools and uh, developing safeguards outside um, that that make the the downside or limit the downside, so to speak. Um, whether this is, uh, you know, technology for um, understanding how to make uh, neural nets more robust to uh, all sorts of different forms of tampering, um, whether it's uh, basically detection of attempts to do so, et cetera, et cetera. So let's talk briefly about a general intelligence. So there, th when I ask people when they think we're going to, have one, I get answers between five and 500 years. And that, mm -hmm. that, by the way, is quite telling. And, and then there's a group of people who don't believe that it's possible. And, th and that group breaks down into two groups. Uh, one portion of them uh, believe that humans aren't mechanistic. They have a soul or a spirit. There's something in them that uh, doesn't necessarily obey the laws of physics. And, and that is the source of self and of consciousness and all of the rest. And, and that can't be manufactured in a fab. So 
draw a circle around that. There's a lot of people, you know, who would who would who would say that that they're mm -hmm. not machines. Mm -hmm. But then I also find a group of people who don't appeal to that as an argument, and yet say we cannot build a general intelligence. Could you make that argument without uh, appealing to any anything spiritual necessarily? Which you know that that could all well be the case, but just could you make an argument on why an AGI might be impossible given the laws of science as we know them? I don't see that actually. I, I think um, from so my personal opinion is that it's it's clearly not impossible. Um, I I do believe that humans are mechanistic to use that word. Um, I'm not exactly sure we already understand all the all the necessary aspects of uh, physics overall in order to to treat them as such. Um, but but given that assumption, I think uh, it's it's certainly not impossible. Well, let and me. I, I wouldn't exactly know how to make the argument. Fair enough. Let me let me let me try this on you then. Uh, mm -hmm. We have brains that we don't understand how they do what they do and we don't not understand them because there's so many neurons we don't we've spent 20 years trying to figure out how nematodes 302 neurons make it do what it does we just don't know how neurons work they could be as complicated as supercomputers. then mm -hmm. we have these minds and minds you know they are all these things your brain can do that it doesn't seem like a brain should be able to do like have a sense of humor your liver doesn't have a sense of humor your stomach doesn't have one somehow your brain does so call that the mind and then, and we don't understand that, and then we are conscious, and consciousness means we experience the world. A computer can measure temperature. We can feel warmth. And not only do we not know how it is that we're conscious, we don't even know how to ask the question scientifically, and we do not know how the answer, what the answer would even look like. And so it seems to me to say, well, we had a general intelligence. We don't know how brains work. We don't know how minds work. We don't know how it is we're conscious. But yeah, there's no question we can't build one. That that seems a, a stretch to me. So defend that mm. if you if you're up. So basically, I think uh, there's a there's a couple of different uh, of different aspects. Um, number one is I'm not sure that we want to define and and now we're back to square one defining artificial intelligence or artificial inte uh, general intelligence. I'm not sure we want to define it in such a way that includes uh, these potentially very particularly human aspects, such as a sense of humor. Um, and if, if we leave that out, then, then maybe it actually turns out that humor or even consciousness are just not necessary um, as phenomena uh, to, uh, to be considered an artificial intelligence or an artificial general intelligence. But but creativity certainly would be, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that I, scene I, I, in yeah, iRobot. There's that scene in iRobot where um, uh, Spooner asks the the um, the robot, you know, can a robot paint a painting? Can a robot write a symphony? And, and, and Sunny says, well, can you? Um, mm -hmm. So we would expect them to write symphonies and write great plays, and we would expect those to have humor and have have emotional mm -hmm. gravitas and have all of this, this human stuff. And furthermore, mm -hmm. it could very well be the case that you have to be conscious to, to be. It could, or, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so fair enough. Maybe we don't need all those parts to make a general intelligence, but that, that still doesn't 
say, well, but I know we can build one, even even though I don't know how any of that stuff works. I know we can build. Yeah, yeah. So, so let me also qualify maybe a little bit what I mean by build uh, and what I'm actually in the long term optimistic about. Though I should say, I you know I wouldn't say this is a, a kind of a certain fact, but I, I definitely don't believe it's impossible. Um, and and that is that when I say build, I don't necessarily mean architect after having understood. Um, kind of the machine as a whole, right? After having understood the roles of all the different uh, capacities, capabilities, phenomena, uh, maybe even emergent phenomena uh, from, from that machine, and then devising a, a blueprint uh, that upon construction actually turns out to be intelligent. When I say build, um, I mean create environments and machinery that is able to improve over time. Um, and uh, extend itself over time, um, improve itself over time. And as a result, maybe eventually, uh, with sufficient capacity, um, become uh, rather, uh, rather, in quotes, intelligent and generally intelligent. So I don't necessarily uh, think of this as, um, uh, as something where we first where where it's a necessary condition for humans to have understood how it all works uh for for us to be able to in some sense replicate some of it fair enough but it seems to me what you're saying is okay yeah we have one example of general intelligence and it stands to reason that some of these these some of these capabilities of that one example, like consciousness and, and mind and creativity and humor, all that may be components. And it sounds like you're saying, yes, we, we can build one. We may not ever understand it, uh, but we can at least evolve it or something like that. Is that what I'm hearing? That's basically, that's basically yeah. what I'm trying to say. So you mentioned emergence, though. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that human intelligence is fundamentally an emergent property? Like... There's something, I mean, clearly it's emergent. I mean, clearly none of your cells are intelligent, and yet you, the collective you, are. Um, mm-hmm. do, how, do, how, do you, how do you wrap your head around that? And do you think it's possible that we're going to just build a computer that eventually becomes so complicated that somehow it has this emergent behavior come about that we don't understand? Is that what you're thinking? Uh, yeah, that's that's basically that's basically what I'm thinking. I think there is. Um, um, I don't I don't uh, feel like I'm uh, you know qualified to, to you know, really reason about the the, the mechanisms of emergence uh, in in say human intelligence you know, going from going from individual cells to to a full a full organism complete organism and the uh, kind of the sudden, seemingly sudden uh, uh, emerging emergence of intelligence. Um, but I do feel like uh, if we if we manage to make progress towards something that is maybe a bit broader than than today's very narrow intelligences, then it, it actually is somewhat likely um, that it'll look like this. That basically, uh, you know, putting together a whole bunch of comparatively simple things, and by whole bunch, I, I mean a great deal of them. Uh, then might give rise to um, dramatically more complex and and potentially difficult to understand behavior. And we're running out of time here. I, I only have about two more minutes. So what 
what in the end when you i assume if i ask you are you positive are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future you're going to tell me you're optimistic i assume yes and if so tell me why tell me give me the the case for that from from what you know and what you're doing um So far, I think uh, if you're asking specifically about the future uh, of of this field, AI or machine learning, um, well, let me. You're right. Let, let, let me let me clarify. So, yeah. you have all of the promise of it. It'll it'll prolong our lives, and it'll help us figure out new forms of energy, and and we'll solve scientific problems, mm-hmm. and we'll increase the standard of living of everybody. We're going to increase productivity. We're effectively going to make everybody on the planet smarter. On the other hand, it's a technology that governments can use to spy on its people, and and it can listen to every phone conversation, it can purse everything out. It can be used, and all of these other and and somehow you net it all out to say, I I'm mm-hmm. overall it's going to be good. So make that case mm-hmm. at, at, in closing here. Yeah, I think um, we've seen that at least in the longer term, technology overall has had. Um, information technology in particular has had a kind of a democratizing effect um, in general distributing in the longer term distributing power at least somewhat more evenly and I think that uh, with AI uh, related technologies that will not be any different um, I definitely see uh, see these dangers and uh, at the same time I see uh, the leaders in the field, um, some of some of whom I am uh, lucky enough to uh, to work with here, um, be extremely conscious of this um, and very aware of of those dangers. Actively uh, working on ways to uh, to prevent them or mitigate them or limit them, um, and and really uh, trying to to work responsibly. And uh, and so I don't necessarily see why with with this. Admittedly, maybe significantly different or more advanced technology, uh, it should in the long term be any different. All right. Well, um, I'm I'm in agreement, and let's hope that's how uh, how it all works out. So, tell me, um, give us a little give us a little insight into kind of your day to day work day, and what what are you working on? Like what 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 fires you up in the morning when you get there, and what 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 exciting breakthrough have we maybe not heard about yet? Mm-hmm. So. Um, let's start uh, kind of with with uh, some of the maybe more applied and somewhat more shorter term uh, technologies I've been working on um, that actually do motivate me uh, quite a bit. So uh, when I started working in this overall field, I um, worked on on Google Translate uh, for for several years, um, which back in those days worked quite differently. Um, from from uh, or use quite different methods um, from what it's using today, and one of the most exciting aspects of uh, of my day to day work these days is that I spend a significant part of my time working on uh, deep learning methods uh, that try to um, improve uh, the the quality of products like like Google Translate. Uh, and one reason that's so motivating is because uh, Google Translate, in particular, is um, you know one of those uh, one of those tools that really brings people together, um, that uh, allows broader and uh, more uh, 
more equal access to information, um, especially in, in the global sense. Um, and uh, it it really um, uh, just yeah has a has a has a very strong motivational effect on me to see uh, when we do um, user studies, for example, see what people actually use this tool uh, to translate. Right? You, of course, you find all sorts of things across the board. Um, but some of the most common translations that you uh, that, that you see, uh, or that you use cases that you hear about from our users, are to communicate with uh, new friends they make, um, to help them in precarious situations while traveling, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's uh, really quite amazing to be able to have a part in that. Um, I think one yeah. fascinating thing about translate is that if you look at the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, their estimates for the number of human translators we need uh, is skyrocketing and will continue to skyrocket. Mm -hmm. That the minute you can reduce the cost of something like tr like translating automatically to zero, it creates this enormous new demand. And then you need human translators to do all these other things, you know, mm -hmm. like the, the specifics of contracts and face-to-face -face meetings and, and mm -hmm. localization and customs and all that. Does that surprise you that you make something as good as a human translator and the world's going to need more translators because of it. It's not too surprising, actually. Um, it's kind of one, it's one instance of a pattern that people often allude to when talking about the future of jobs or the future of work, that basically automating um, a significant chunk of, uh, say, a certain family of, of job might actually not mean that uh, you know there will be fewer jobs in that area, but might mean that they just become somewhat more specialized or uh, somewhat more focused on the um, particular uh, kind of differentiating abilities of humans um, doing a, a subset of, of those tasks. And so overall, this is, I think, something uh, that, that we've seen time and time again um, over the, the course, basically, of, of human uh, evolution and civilization is that um, improving technology actually increases the demand for, um, uh, for, for, for human labor in the same area. It's not always true, but, but often it is. And I think in, in the case of translation, I'm not very surprised that that might remain the case for quite a while until machine translation really got to the point where you would trust it to translate uh, you know, a particularly important contract. Right. I mean, the, the textbook case is uh, ATM machines. You know, there's more, there's more tellers now than there were when they introduced the machine because yep. the machine lowered the cost of opening branches. People opened more branches. Each one needed more tellers and, and exactly. so forth. Exactly. And so what, what other kinds of things? So uh, is, is, is that kind of how it works? You focus on one thing like machine translation for a long time and, and, and you enhance, 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 enhance. Um, or, or, or do you have like kind of multiple projects you work on at once? Right. So, so this is exactly where, where I wanted to go with this. The interesting thing is that as opposed to the way we worked on Translate um, back in 2008 um, and, and, or 2006, um, uh, back in those days, one of the crucial differences between now and then is that the models that we're using for translation now actually also apply quite well to uh, dramatically different tasks, uh, even some that don't deal with text at all. And so one of the most exciting aspects of my work nowadays is that 
uh, even though I've uh, invested a lot of time over the last few years in models that we initially used to improve machine translation, um, we then started to adapt those models with actually sometimes surprisingly small changes to, for example, do super resolution of images where you take a, a low resolution image of a, of a human face and you generate a much higher resolution image uh, of, a, of a human face automatically, where the model basically has to invent uh, missing detail that the low resolution version uh, just doesn't contain anymore. And, and suddenly, and this is really uh, one of the major, I think, um, uh, advances that we've seen with uh, the rise of deep learning, um, that the underlying methodologies, uh, when you look at problems as different as image generation, machine translation, um, things like analyzing network traffic in, uh, in, in, in networks to do intrusion detection, uh, a lot of those problems now rely on extremely similar methodologies. And it really changes the way you conduct research in, in, in multiple ways, but one uh, particular uh, that you now basically um, have many completely different fields to evaluate your work in, or completely different applications, I should say, to evaluate your work in, but also you can use applications in these different areas to uh, draw inspiration uh, for how to improve certain things. Basically, uh, use different failure cases in different applications in order to understand what is it that these models are missing? What are, what are the currently truly limiting factors? Um, and, and I think that uh, that is actually one of the, one of the most uh, fascinating, to me, one of the most fascinating things about, about my day-to-day -day work, that basically I expect the, the math mathematical models um, uh, that I'm experimenting with now to not only be applied in Google Translate, but over time in a whole range of different uh, products spanning different media, all the way from text, spoken language, images, uh, increasingly video, uh, et cetera. And so I'm, I'm curious, just like as a matter of day-to-day, -day, like how much autonomy do you, do you and your team have and kind of charting the direction, like how how is how is the ship guided about what do you work on and or, or not work on? What are the criteria and, and so forth? Mm -hmm. So Google Brain overall is actually um, now a, a fairly large and uh, at least somewhat complex organization with a few different tiers. Um, the the research part and, and those tiers span a, a pretty broad array of, of, of different. Uh, uh, areas of work. Um, there is a group that focuses on uh, using AI and machine learning in health applications, but, but a broad spectrum of those. Um, there is, of course, many people who are working on uh, tooling, uh, TensorFlow probably being the most uh, the most prominent example of that, tooling for enabling machine learning research, uh, AI research, but also the deployment of, of the fruits of, uh, fruit of that, uh, of that labor. And then there's a, a fairly large uh, research arm. Uh, and that research arm ultimately is, uh, uh, or, or the researchers in that research arm ultimately are extremely free uh, choosing uh, their directions of research. There are a bunch of themes that uh, I think emerge largely. Um, and uh, we have some organizational uh, tools, if you wish, um, to then facilitate larger projects. 
to drive forward research in these specific themes as we realize that there is maybe uh, something significant uh, that might um, require or benefit from from lots of people from a larger team. But ultimately, uh, the individuals in the team are are really to a very large extent uh, self-guided. I want to thank you so much for a fascinating near hour. We could I, I could have gone on all day, but uh, I hope you'll come back to the show thank some you. other time. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.